So in today's episode, we have a top psychologist called Hodi Damastani, who I often refer my clients to, and we have my social attraction head coach, Peter Gunnery. We're going to be discussing everyday anxiety. These are tangible ways to deal with stress and anxiety. So if you're someone that gets overwhelmed, if you're someone that feels like stress just during your daily activities, if you've got physical symptoms of being tight, in this episode, we're going to be unearthing some really good strategies. So I hope you enjoy today's episode and make sure to like this video and subscribe. So I guess the first place to start is the difference between cognitive and somatic anxiety, because there's there are two different parts to this. Could you sort of give us a hand, Hoddy, with that? Of course, yes. Yeah. So cognitive is the thought component. So anything in the thought component, any thoughts, beliefs, perceptions that come up in that moment that result in the feeling of anxiety. And then the somatic side of it is the physical and the physiological aspect. So things like increased heart rate, disruption in breathing, um, palpitations, tension in the body, those kind of things. So... I'm guessing you deal with each of these like separate, right? But I wanted to ask before we even get into that, what about like an underlying stress that you're not necessarily aware of? Does that fall into somatic? It's a good question, actually. I mean, anxiety tends to be more acute and okay. you so you can be, have an ongoing underlying stress, but that wouldn't necessarily be anxiety. It would make you more vulnerable to anxiety. Okay. Um, but uh, so you might, there's a number of underlying predisposing factors, if you like, that are related to stress that are going to make it more likely that you might experience more acute anxiety in certain situations. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So, so I guess what we should probably do is do another podcast episode talking about that topic because it sounds like it's completely different to anxiety. And I guess to start off with whether it's sort of a mental anxiety or somatic. Pete, what are you, what are you generally in your life? What have you struggled with most, do you think? The, well, I mean, from from my journey i'd say initially it would be cognitive i think the last maybe two years it's probably more somatic semantic somatic somatic yeah. yeah but before then yeah definitely cognitive i shutting off my brain was impossible up until what 18 months ago Hods? something yeah. like that yeah yeah so it's interesting i mean i when you draw a distinction on these often it's both for me, so it's just like when you say it's somatic, sometimes if you tune in, you actually realise that there is actually internal dialogue that goes with it. Definitely. I, I, I'm not sure how helpful it is sometimes to make that distinction. I've sort of changed my view on this over the years because okay. the general hypothesis is that you tend to treat cognitive anxiety with more of a cognitive treatment and somatic anxiety with more somatic treatment. Mm. That's the matching hypothesis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um but over the years of working in this field for, with many clients for many years, um, I don't think it's that helpful to make that distinction that I tend to, to work somatically first and then I tend to find that will have an automatic impact on the cognitive component as well. And yeah. having said that, if mm. someone is very aware that cognitive for mm. them dominates then it would make sense maybe to to do a little bit more of a slant on, on a cognitive treatment but uh, but i'm not so sure on that anymore so, so predominantly it's a somatic approach then to 
anxiety? I feel so. Yeah, my my opinion of that and the way I practice has changed to a degree mm. over the years from the feedback I've had from people and from the results that I've yeah. got. And I'm not sure, as you quite rightly said, how separating them neatly mm. into those distinct categories, how helpful that is in terms of how people actually experience it, as well as how yeah. you treat it. I completely understand. So for the everyday man that can't necessarily do therapy or you know can't afford therapy or wants to potentially just do something for their mental well-being what kind of somatic approaches are there i mean i guess there's broad spectrum ones perhaps we could start there but i guess there's others that perhaps you think are more valuable than other ones that are in the general sort of domain mm -hmm. yeah okay uh, well i think primarily the important thing to realize to recognize sorry is that anxiety is primarily a physiological response so this is one of the reasons i tend to start much more with the somatic approach anyway um, and when that response is initiated the stress response is initiated then it tends to be a dysregulation in the breathing and tension in the muscles that then signal to the brain there's threat there's danger we need energy mm. we need to deal with this now so breathing and relaxing the body would be the two primarily generally that i would recommend how i mean that i understand that that's really hard to do in the moment it's, so like you're feeling anxious and stressed like to just suddenly go i'm going to slow down my breathing i mean how, how could you? Well, yeah. this, is, this is why with, with my clients, I make the distinction between the practices that you do, which is like the training to make sure that in those moments, which is like using a sports metaphor would be like the competition, mm -hmm. that when it really matters, you're able to do those things. So if you mm -hmm. if you expect to only do the breathing and relaxing mm -hmm. your body when you feel anxious, then it's not going to be a very reliable or effective approach. Whereas yeah. if every day you're you're doing the training, you're doing the breathing routine, you're, you're doing the progressive muscle relaxation teaching you how to mm. how to relax and tune into muscle tension and relaxation if you do those things regularly then you build those new neural pathways so that in those moments when you really need them mm. you can have a shorter version where you just take a couple of deep breaths longer out breath yeah. and then relaxing the parts of your body that you'll you know tense up because you've done the practice and you have that awareness that's a really good distinction. Oh, it's funny, I was reading a martial arts book on, on sort of pre-performance routines and what this guy initially had was like a 40 minute one. And then over the years, he refined it down to a couple of minutes where and, he could get into the right state. And that's quickly. exactly what I recommend with my clients. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, with that, the because obviously, Pete, you meditate as well, right? So I think there's two points on that. So I've noticed I've been meditating for nearly like 15 years now, I think, around that. So I've noticed that the meditation genu generally makes me calmer anyway and less susceptible to the everyday stresses. But I guess it also enables you to cope better when they come because you're calm. Is that something you've noticed as well? Or um, Sort of. Now, I don't meditate consistently. Definitely not anymore. I think for me, it was more like, again, being more, that's why I was in my own head for so many years. I had the ability to once I could switch off my mind and literally sit there and nothing was going through my head almost it was weird once I was comfortable in that I would come up to a situation and feel the anxiety come up and I would almost feel like I was going into I can't take action and because of that sort of cognitive function that was when I allowed that to kick in mm. and then I could say okay what's the action I need to take well I'm feeling anxious breathe yeah. deeper breaths 
balancing your thoughts, which we've done, mm. and, and that sort of thing. And that allowed me to remember what it feels like to be relaxed rather than actually actively relax everything. So it's a slightly different way of going about it. It makes sense though, because you've essentially found a way of doing it that worked mm. for you, right? So, and then you can do it quicker, the more confidence you have in it. Because the other thing as well, isn't it? It's the confidence that it works. Because it's like, it's okay when you read it online or someone watches a video, so do this. But actually when you do it and then you feel stressed and you actually follow through and it works, mm -hmm. you then have confidence to do it moving forward, right? I mean, I, I actually feel that progressive muscular relaxation is generally more helpful than meditation and mm. mindfulness because yeah. another way of defining anxiety is excess energy. Mm. So if you've got excess energy in your body and you're able to relax those muscles or tense and relax, then you release that excess energy. Whereas meditation can be very helpful, but essentially meditation mm. is teaching you how to train your attention. Meditation yeah. is a attentional training and everything is attention so if when anxiety comes you can choose to pay attention to it be locked into it or yeah, you can yeah. choose to notice it and you can you can let Th go of that that's interesting then so i've been doing like a meditation by a guy called shinzen young which oh I, i'm of, aware of him yeah yeah so one of his ones that i've been doing for like 15 years is called global relaxation and it doesn't work by tensing a muscle first but it is progressive muscle relaxation but without the tensing first so it's like you focus on relaxing your jaw then your face then your eyes then your body so the, the difference between that and what you're suggesting is the progressive muscle relaxation, you tense the muscle first before you relax it. You do the with, with the PMR, with the training side of it. I wouldn't yeah. say you'd necessarily be doing that in, in the moment with anxiety because you're already going to be tense. I wouldn't okay. necessarily recommend you tense further to release. But the, the point really with the tensing first, well, there's a number of benefits. I think the main one being is it gets used, you get used to recognising the sensation of the feeling of tension in your muscles and then comparing that to the feeling of relaxed because mm. i think so many of us we're carrying a reasonable amount of tension anyway mm. particularly if we're under ongoing stress that yeah. we just get used to that that's our kind of default kind of i know that i'm carrying quite a bit of mm. tension in my shoulders at the moment you might see me wriggling around a little bit throughout yeah. the uh, interview um but i think from the tensing and first of all you you tune into and you recognize this is what my body feels like or certain parts of my body when I'm tense. And this is what it feels like when I'm very relaxed. So you've got that contrast and it trains you to be able to, to be aware of the difference between the two. Interesting. So the, the training for this. So if you wanted to just practice this training yourself, mm -hmm. you would select the part of your body that you most likely struggle with. So for me, it's often my stomach where I feel anxious, I get a tight stomach. So the first step is aware of what it feels like when it's tight. And another one is potentially for me would be to what it feels like after I've done a meditation, because then I've at least got like a ballpark on both. So once you're aware of the difference, how do you transition from the tightness to the relaxation? Because if you're, you're tight and stressed and anxious, you know, you can say sort of breathe into it. Is it saying to yourself to relax? Is it breathing at this? Is it a bit of both? It's that awareness, first of all. I think that that awareness is very important. Most people are not tuned into their bodies very much at all. And it's the, the, the energy in the body, the somatic aspect that's driving that anxiety, that stress response okay. physiologically. Yeah. So... By doing the, the practice of tensing and relaxing, first of all, I would recommend doing all the major parts of the body because most people, although they might be aware of where the anxiety is in their body to a degree, and some people aren't, by the way, mm. um, also by doing the practice, you start to notice other parts of your mm. body um, mm. tense as well. I remember working with a client who would get panic attacks, but by doing the PMR, 
he noticed that the first parts of his body that were tense were his toes. And that was not something he was aware of before. But by doing the PMR, he recognized that the first cue to him that I'm about to panic is his toes would relax. As toes were tense, sorry. Mm. Now he recognizes that he's able to relax his feet when that happens and that can interrupt that response. That's amazing. So you, you're essentially looking for the first part of your body where you feel it. And if you can interrupt, the, the sooner you interrupt it, the less stress you're going to yeah, get. Yeah, I think the That's first amazing. part and the parts that, that respond yeah. most, most uh, vigorously as well, I guess. That's amazing. So while we're sort of on this area, Often when these things happen, it's because you're busy or you're doing things right. So how, how do you even have the awareness to recognize that during your everyday life? Because it's, it's all right saying, you know, these things, but then you go out, you've got a work meeting, you, you've got all these different things to do and you get home and then you're like, oh my God, like I'm really stressed, but you're on autopilot before then. Mm-hmm. So how would you even recognize this well i I think the first thing is that awareness that it it, checking in with the body is helpful and noticing and being aware of what's happening in your body at any point would be helpful so first of all that's in your conscious awareness to a degree and then it's being able to maybe set time aside at key points in your day where Mm. you might have a break and Mm. then just close your eyes come into your body do a little scan of your body just check check anything that that you're aware of and if there's any tension that you're aware of then just just soften and relax that part of your body so th- so th- there's two parts to this there's the pmr training and the checking in with yourself throughout the day where have you got a program or is there some where what would you say someone can learn the pmr is there tutorials online is it fa- fairly easy to work out how to do it it's fairly easy to okay. do i'm sort of working on various things at the moment okay. that uh, i'm going to be offering soon but uh, but yes it's not something that is complicated or difficult to find yeah. it essentially involves tensing and relaxing different parts of your body for five seconds and how long does it take to do your whole body roughly if you're going to go through the, the pmr the major body parts probably about five minutes Okay, so it's something that you could do a couple of times a day if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, have you, Pete? Have you ever had a go at PMR? Uh, yeah, but my my question would be: there's there's certain quite large muscle groups in my body that I don't actually know how to tense without. Even if I go to the gym, I don't actually know how to tense. The movement's fine, but I don't know how to to do it. How would you go about learning to tense or relax? Because it goes both ways. It does. And that's a very good question, Pete. You know, sometimes you're able to identify and target those muscle groups and able to tense them. Other times it's not necessarily so straightforward. Sometimes you'll be tensing that area, but it may not necessarily be the very specific area. But I think through practice and also as well, people that tend to exercise more regularly, as I know you do, tend to have more kinesthetic awareness. So they're able to to tune into their bodies and, and able to tense and relax muscle groups independently more effectively some people that don't go to the gym don't have that ability at all actually Mm. so just Mm. things that as regular exercises we might take for granted like engaging the core and tensing your abs would be something that somebody who doesn't exercise might not be able to do so that's a good point that that was a really good point because i i you know when for me when i was training i could never do sit-ups properly i'd always get a backache and it's when an osteopath showed me how to engage my core actually by your coughing muscles you cough and it turns it on then you can do a sit-up i'm like i I wasn't even aware that i wasn't do you know what i mean there's no awareness of being exactly so, the, so for you then, the, the progressive muscle relaxation is something that is the go-to for everyday stress management. That's For you, it's more effective than other tools, cognitive tools, perhaps 
journaling and things like these or per personally, personally? I, I feel it's an important one okay. i'm not dismissing the other ones entirely by any means but i i think firstly most people are pretty deep disconnected from their bodies mm -hmm. generally and i think moving coming into your body coming out of your head is a useful thing mm. to do anyway but having that body awareness being able to tune into your body to tune into your nervous system to a degree mm. to understand what's happening there and if there's excess energy or tension there if you're able to to mm. settle that is a really useful skill to be able to have and that that can stop that anxiety from escalating yeah, sure. be it cognitive or somatic i feel i have a sort of left field question for you. I'm not sure if there's much evidence on this, but where, where does where does sort of creating art and being creative come into this? So for example, like you're suffering from anxiety and you paint a picture or you draw a picture which expresses how you feel and gets how you feel out. Is is that does that fit in within this or is that a nice add-on or is it therapeutic? It's a good question. Well, again, you know, one one way, as I said earlier on, of defining anxiety is excess energy. Mm. So if you're able to use that energy in some way, then at the very least, it's going to be a distraction. Mm. And distraction can be quite helpful. It's not it's not the most superior method, mm. but uh, but distraction can be helpful if you're not focusing on the anxiety. If you can do something that's distracting, but also you can become engaged in. So it requires concentration mm -hmm. or it's meaningful or it's purposeful mm -hmm. and you're able to focus on that and give that your attention instead, then that would be a helpful thing to do. It's whether you're able to to channel it in that way in those moments when you're when yeah. you're feeling anxious because mm. one of the things that happens with anxiety as, as we know is your thinking brain leaves the building yeah. and your emotional mind yeah. takes over your ability to make rational logical mm. balanced decisions is seriously compromised where does cold showers fit into this so if you're having a, a, one of these you know you you're struggling could you jump into a cold shower or an ice bath is that is there enough evidence to suggest that that's going to calm your nervous system down and allow you to just get back to a good base level here? It can do. But again, it's not something I'd necessarily recommend doing when you're anxious in the moment, mm. because when you have cold showers, the first thing that happens is your nerve, you go into sympathetic mm. nervous system, first of all. Mm. So you're already anxious, you're already in fight or flight, and then you're doing something that's going to exacerbate that even more. Yeah. The, the so benefit of yeah. cold showers is the rebound effect you get afterwards. Mm. So it's more the cold showers, ice baths are a good ongoing maintenance which because of the endorphins that you get and everything, they might prevent you from feeling anxious just because you're doing them right. So it's more of a proactive rather than reactive Absolutely. approach. And there's lots of benefits. There's lots of research looking at and you know, the way it helps with inflammation and immune system benefits, yeah. all those kind of things. But again, it, it's a good practice as an ongoing thing in the same way that PMR is and mm. meditation is. Mm. Have you have you got any, any other questions? Well, I, was, I was going to go back a little bit and say, um, just, just going into using the journaling or using art as a channel so when i was growing up i would channel basically any emotion that i did feel into swimming and then later on rugby which yeah it gets rid of and expresses the feelings but it doesn't necessarily hit the underlying but is there a transitional thing so you can use art or journaling or whatever as a get the cognitive side out and express in order to allow the mind to calm and then 
tune in. Absolutely, Pete. Yeah, I mean, journaling is very helpful for that reason, you know, to write things down so it gives it some coherence and some structure and it gets out of your head. That's a that's a very useful thing to be able to do. This channeling things in the way we're describing is uh, it's a defense mechanism. It's called sub- sublimation. So Freud talked about this mm-hmm. as a defense mechanism that people use when when they have feelings that are too much for them to be able to tolerate. They channel it into more socially mm-hmm. abs- acceptable forms. So it's a it's a defense mechanism. If we look at, look at it in a psychoanalytic framework, that's a good point, isn't it? Because so true. So so again, yeah. yeah, you can channel it, but you know it's kind of still there. Yeah. But it it's a defense. It stops you from being lost in those feelings or overwhelmed by those feelings. So it, it's helpful. Serves a purpose. Yeah, I mean, what, what I was well, <coughs> once I started to understand myself a little bit better, sort of mid to late twenties, I would allow myself to channel when I needed to in order to come back and then analyze is probably the wrong word, but kind of analyze it and look for the underlying reasons and get get to the bottom of it solve it clear it whatever expression works best and then move forward as a stronger person off the back of it exactly. so it's kind of like a, a three-step process mm-hmm. i suppose and in that case it's more than just distraction you can distract yourself from anxiety by doing a number of things by doing the washing up or doing mm-hmm. some mining whatever it may be um, but it's not meaningful or purposeful in the way that the art was for you that when you're when you're using sublimation you're you're channeling it into something that is creative, something that is meaningful. Um, it's it's goes over and and beyond just pure distraction. Following on from this, that the second area I wanted to talk about was about mindfulness. <coughs> I feel like the term mindfulness is just banded around, and no one really sort of understands it. You, you get all this content online about being more mindful. Yeah, I don't really think most of the advice online is really that helpful. So I wanted to clear this up. I, first of all, could you make a distinction on actually what mindfulness is from a psychological point of view? Again, it's really about attention. It, it's it's holding your attention more fully on an activity when you're engaged in that activity without being hijacked by distracting thoughts. So when people say, or the general advice is you should be more mindful during your day-to-day life, which I find to be really terrible advice, because what does that actually mean? Pretty vague, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it more like um, when you're sat down and you've got a moment, like increase the your sensual awareness so what can you smell what can you hear is it you know becoming more aware of your current environment more present absolutely yeah Yeah, that's it it's more more present more in the moment through your senses primarily so yeah that's a good grounding and anchoring technique that you described as well sort of Mm. anchoring yourself into the present with the senses but yes and i agree i with you entirely it's banded around that term um but i think essentially it's it's anything that any act activity in your in your life you could do more mindfully by being more present and less in your head when you do it so my question hoddy is uh so where have you been able to become more mindful in your life in the last 10 years and is wow on the spot yeah and also yeah is that linked to the fact that you're you're less anxious as a human being because you've got 10 years more life experience so is it is it like you've become more mindful because you're aware of being mindful or is it just 
you cope better with life because you have more life experience. You are naturally more mindful because when I think about this, I just think, yeah, of course you get more mindful with age because you you understand more about the way the world works. Can you be mindful as a 21 year old in your first job where you're overwhelmed, mm. stressed and, and work? I don't think you can. <laughs> I think people might say, I, I, yes, you can. I, I, I see your point. I think there's a distinction between knowledge and life experience and understanding and mindfulness. So if we simplify mindfulness to just being in the present, Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something that requires life experience necessarily once you once once you know in theory what you're meant to be doing, mm-hmm. which is whenever any unrelated thoughts yeah. come in, you bring yourself back on task, whatever it is you're doing, feel the sensation mm-hmm. of whatever it is you're doing. Um, be be in the present moment again easier said than done but it, it's not it's not something I, I don't think it's something necessarily that people automatically improve on as they get older with life experience Mm. i think we get more knowledge more understanding uh, more yeah more knowledge understanding and experience but we don't necessarily learn to become more present by virtue of aging is it i mean my perspective is slightly different on that so if i go back 10 years in my life I'm so goal-driven, wanting to prove myself, so goal-orientated that my focus is just, I'm so like obsessed with achieving my goals and working on them. There's no space or there's no time for me to be mindful because I don't value it and I don't care, mm-hmm. right? It's only in the recent years when actually I've calmed down a bit with my work because I've, be- I've become, I've got the success that I wanted from my work. Now I'm less goal-driven per se with work. I feel myself being more mindful. Mm. So surely it also comes down to like, the, the bandwidth that you have available to even want to be mindful. Absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. It come, everything comes down to your goals and desires, doesn't it? So, you know, if, if your goals and desires change, that creates more space for mm. mindfulness. Or if you decide for various reasons that it's now more important for you to be mindful, mm. you have to make a decision to do mm. that. And there has to be some desire to do that. So you could have sense. more space in your life because your goals have changed, but there, there may not be, still be a desire to yeah. be mindful. How... How important is it to have being mindful in your goals? So let's let's have my list of what I'm going to do today, right? So I'm going to have a cold shower or an ice bath. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to read. I'm going to create some content. I'm going to do a little bit of socializing, right? I mean, how important is for me to add on another goal, which let's be honest, I mean, everyone, you put any content on online and everyone's telling you a thousand different things you need to be working on, right? So in the hierarchical structure for mental well-being, how high up is being mindful to being emotionally well it's a good question and there's my personal opinion and there's what the what the researchers say on that (laughs) so i see your point i I think i think it is helpful for a variety of reasons that whatever you do if you can have your attention on that activity and less in your head there's a number of benefits to that least of all that you're more likely to enjoy whatever it is that you're doing it's more like you're more likely to get more pleasure or meaning from whatever it is you're doing if your attention is more Mm. on that activity i know there's a harvard study that was done that uh, that found that up to 50 percent of the time Mm. we have our attention divided in whatever Mm. it is that we're doing so Mm. it's not something that many people can do and i don't think we should aspire to to be mindful in all our activities because i I, it's just not realistic i think if you can remind yourself to do that in activities that might be helpful for you to do that then great but uh, Mm. but i think it's a bit of an it's probably a little bit of an unrealistic or too challenging goal yeah so 
there's a little bit more sort of nuance to this actually for my next question so you know i hosted a course recently up in london sort of a three-day course right so in the lunch break i'm having lunch with a girl that works for me right so obviously i'm presenting and hosting a course in the afternoon she's just there being hired to work on the course but doesn't have any expectations placed on her right so she's sitting there enjoying her food right i'm sitting there not being mindful because i know that i need to be prepared for something else later on so it is essentially being mindful not being goal driven because because for me i think it, it, it in that moment i don't see how you can be doing both um, being yeah. mindful is, is not being in your head in any capacity. So yeah. so whether that be thinking about goals, whether that be, you know, a, any thoughts that uh, that it, it's an absence of, of those thoughts. So yeah. it's being being present, being more in the moment, being more in your yeah. body. So if you're someone that is not successful in their life and wants to become more successful, you know, I'm already thinking, well, where does mindfulness fit into this? Because it's like, you know, I want to be goal driven because mm. let's be honest, life's hard and you need to be focused on your goals. So, you know, I'm say I'm sort of 38 now, 39 in a few days. But if I go back like 15 years, right, I'm like, there's no space for this because I don't I don't see how this benefits me. Mm. And if it's about like managing stress, then I'm more likely to do a meditation or something as part of my day rather than trying to be mindful during an experience. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And I agree with you that I, I think if you're if you're very goal driven, if you have a busy schedule, if success is important to you, then uh, then maybe mindfulness, being more mindful in daily activities might not be the best fit for mm. you. I mean, sort of enlightened people don't tend to get too much done, do they? You know, so. <laughs> that, 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 that's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm with so you if you're about productivity, then then I get where you're coming from. And personally, yeah. I understand that. It's, mm. you know, am I that mindful in my day-to-day -day activities? Prob probably not. Yeah. I would tend to, to have it as an exercise in a more structured yeah. way that I would do at certain points if I felt the need. So I, I acknowledge your point. I agree. Yeah. So where, I, where I, would, I would challenge on that a little bit because... Because I would I would agree with Gary's point of when you're sat and having lunch, you don't need to be mindful because there's other things to take your attention. But I would also challenge you and say when you were actually delivering, you were mindful because you were focused on that one activity and that activity I, only. Yeah, I would say that that is not a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that, that's a, another good point here, Pete. Conscious choice. I'm when I'm presenting. Yeah, I'm completely in the moment. But but for me, what you're saying is completely accurate. I think mindfulness is the byproduct. I don't think mm. it's the goal. Yeah, no, I, agree. I think mindfulness is what, like now, like I'm completely in the moment, right? I'm being mindful, but that's, I didn't wake up and say, I'm going to be mindful. <laughs> I'm working on something meaningful that requires mental capacity and focus. And whilst I'm here, there's a heightened state of awareness. So, so my, my, to, just to go a little bit further down this rabbit hole, my biggest not failing but the struggle over the last one uh, of them <laughs> well, the biggest one Gary. but the, the one i struggled with up until a couple of months ago actually was if i didn't get enough sleep over the course of a week i could not focus and i couldn't concentrate it just i could not do it now i've come up with a solution which actually works really really well and that for me is where the mindfulness was that's where i was trying to learn the skill of mindfulness because i wanted to be able to concentrate because as soon as I can concentrate, I get stuff done. Mm. And I think for you, by doing meditation, however, however long, you kind of had the skill of mindfulness, even if you're not mm. consciously doing it, you had a skill which you could activate in those moments. 
Whereas for me personally, unless I was in the right space of mind where mm. I mean, we hear all the time from clients, I was in the right headspace. So I did really, really well talking mm. to the girl over there. But another day, completely yeah. rubbish. I, I, th I think it push back slightly on that, because if I said to you now that there's 30 people there and you've got to go and give a talk on how to continue a conversation with a woman or how to start a conversation, right, you'd be able to do it. Exactly. So I, I think for me, if I, if I had to like sort of label the, the areas, you know, I just think the whole, I'm not really into the whole mindfulness thing. I just think it's like nonsense. I, I think it's more, more that what we should be educating people to do is find something that you enjoy doing, that's giving value to people, that's difficult, whether that's painting, whether it's podcasting, whatever it is, when you do that and you care about it, you go deep with it, you're automatically mindful. So I think mindfulness is the byproduct of it. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. you're you're making a distinction between a flow state and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about there is a flow state. Mm -hmm. And with a flow state, there needs to be an element of challenge to that activity. Yeah. I, it's that sweet spot of finding something yeah. that's challenging, but not too challenging and not too easy or it becomes boring. It, and yeah. mindfulness is a, is, a, is a state of attention as is flow. So I would say that we should be aiming for flow and not mindfulness, because I, I think the help, for me, the benefits are identical. You know, and if anything, I think it's it's forced and laboured if you're trying to be mindful. Now, you know, I've had the luxury of had a, having a few moments in my life where I was mindful, where it wasn't forced. And there's some of the best moments in my life. So just a, when I was coaching someone and he achieved success and I really wanted to do well and the sun was out and there was music on, it was it was a moment that's just etched in my memory as just being one of those really amazing moments. It wasn't forced. It happened naturally. And I think for me... That's what life's about. You, you you work hard, use things, and you get these moments of mindfulnesses that occur. You know, when someone says, you know, when their kid's born or whatever, they're not trying to be mindful, are they? Mm -hmm. It's just that moment of heightened awareness. And, and that's where the memories come from. No, I, I would agree. And I yeah. agree. Mindfulness is not really my thing so much either, <laughs> if, I, if I'm honest. No, I, I agree. But, <laughs> but, but one thing I will say is, yes, aim for flow states. But the difference with mindfulness and flow states is you... you motivating people to getting involved in an activity that's challenging is not always that easy whereas you can do any you can make a cup of tea mindfully um whereas you can't get into a flow state making a cup of tea yeah. you know that so um i agree with you because you're driven in the same way that i am but for people that are less driven mm. just convincing somebody to to get involved in something that's challenging mm. and might take you to to the edge of your capabilities that that is difficult for some people to motivate themselves yeah. to do that that's a really good point and and if we take like a chess analogy here because this is i just had a recent experience of this is like someone wanted to play me at chess and he thought he was going to beat me and didn't beat me right and what happens is he got very frustrated and ended up quitting the game because it was difficult yet i wouldn't do that i would continue to play through the difficulty and i would challenge myself to be able to do it but then what you're saying is right most people don't want the challenge mm -hmm. they want to be able to do something and get instant results quick wins without mm -hmm. actually doing any of the work or any of the difficulty yeah. exactly which is yeah. why you know, a lot of people don't get into those flow states regularly mm. um but uh, but then there's the other example that you gave which is not really a flow state so much because there's not the challenge element but spontaneously there are these moments that happen where you are you are fully in the yeah. present you're yeah, aware yeah. and it just happens spontaneously so i think that there's there's some value for, for me, it's all about training attention. The, mo the most important skill that we can learn as human beings is the ability 
ability to train and hold and direct our attention. Attention yeah. is the currency of everything. So whether yeah. that's through mindfulness, PMR or breathing, mm. in all of those, you're training your attention. I completely agree with you. And actually, when with regards to training your attention, one of the things you can do as a guy to get more dating success is to train yourself to give women less attention. The, when guys are speaking to women and they, they're getting engaged in conversation and they're flirting, teasing, having fun, right? Actually, they're not really attracting that woman into their life. They're giving her too much of their attention. And as a guy, training someone to not give women attention is one of the hardest things you can train anyone mm. to do because they want they want to give the woman attention but they don't want the result of not getting the success not dating her not being with her right so trying to train them to do the opposite is really hard and some of the things we do on our training courses is we uh if we go into a social environment and a guy looks over at a girl we make him automatically go and start a conversation with her because that's more painful than looking over so actually over time we train people's awareness to stop looking and if you stop looking that in itself makes you direct your attention and focus a bit I more see. yeah it's interesting like it. yeah, yeah 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 i mean pete we were talking about this on the course oh yeah i mean and the other the other thing is also if you're if you're focusing your attention on a lot of, not even women, but a lot of things going on around you, again, whether this is mindful or not, it's a slightly different area. But it's like you're putting yourself in a position to become anxious because mm. you're not focusing on what's important to you right, right in front of you. Even yeah. if that is in the sense of drinking a cup of tea, drinking the cup yeah. of tea or working, making notes, working a journal or whatever, whatever you happen to be mm. doing in that moment because you're too busy worried about what's going on around you but i think if you're directing your if you're in control of your attention i wouldn't see that as being an issue right so it's like if you're having a cup of tea and you're thinking about work tomorrow about upcoming challenges you're in control of your attention right i guess the problem is the automatic mind wandering or focus on things that aren't important a couple exactly. of things on this then so um how do you train your attention would be my first question and the second question would be on a this is probably a really difficult question to answer but 24 hours in a day, you sleep eight, right? If you're lucky. So that leaves 16 hours, right? On a psychological perspective, where should you be putting your attention in those 16 hours that give you the most benefits? That's a really hard question to answer, right? But it's like, if you're looking at this on a global scale, the mm -hmm. attention's the most important thing. I need to train it. Do you start off by saying, right, I'm going to train myself to look at this dot and not look away? Or do you train yourself by saying, I'm going to read for half an hour? So how, how does, yeah, is there, is there literature on this? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um I'm not sure is the honest answer, but yeah. I think there are a number of methods by which you can train your attention. I okay. think it's a, it's a useful skill to have, particularly to, to not be hijacked by, by thoughts, mm. whatever those thoughts may be and whenever they come along. Whether the vehicle is, is yeah, visual staring at dots, whether it's, it's mindfulness, whether it's breathing, whether it's PMR, um, all of those to a degree, to one degree or another, are training your attention so it's just your your ability to be able to hold and direct your attention is a very important skill there's a number yeah. of ways you can develop that so if i had a million pounds hard and i said to you tomorrow right you got you got 16 hours to train me to hold my attention on certain things what would be your go-to where would you say let's start off with this this would be the first thing that i think that could be beneficial I think I would find the best fit for the person that I'm working with. I think that that's a useful thing generally to do. So I, I, I would maybe take a handful of those different techniques that yeah. I mentioned and take somebody through those and notice, uh, ask them to give me feedback as to which ones they tended to find they were able to experience the least amount of mind wandering. And 
would you train them on the ones they're good at or would you train them on the ones they're bad at? Because I'd be like, well, if I'm terrible at that, I want to start with that. If I can't, if I can't, when, when I, I just left field on this, but when I was a kid, my parents used to force me to read as a punishment. And what that had the effect of as an adult, I couldn't read a book without having anxiety. So I trained myself. It took me about a year where I would force myself to read every single day until I didn't feel anxious, until I actually forced myself mm. to be able to do that. So obviously you can train yourself to be able to focus on anything, right? That That's possible. So do you do you start with the things you're bad at or do you start with things you're good at? I would always start with the things that are easiest to do, Gary, for the majority yeah. of people, okay. definitely. So so do the things that are easiest to do and the things that are best fit for you. Okay. Well, you know, the, the science, the literature on behaviour change shows very much so that so if something is resistance. easy to do, the path of least yeah. resistance, just to be able to make a start on that. And then once you, so say, let's say, for example, that you're most receptive to um, PMR, right? You're most receptive to that. So you start start doing that and then you you get success that he can do the five minutes or the 10 minutes of doing it right after that would you then what work on the next easiest thing and then the next easiest thing and then you build build the the focus from there or the attention that from sounds there. like a reasonable way of doing it yeah yeah, yeah. it's not something that i've done in the way th yeah, that yeah, you're describing it. but thinking about it now that that would that would make sense i don't know if i'd be quite so rigid about it in that okay. way but uh, but open. i i'd choose the one that the feel is the best fit and then sort of work from that point maybe maybe in sort of in the way that you described so we all three of us actually are trained in neurolinguistic programming right i mean Part of that, which is probably stolen from another therapy, but anyway, part of that was interrupting patterns with a pattern interrupt and then moving on to something else. So when you say like train your attention, are pattern interrupts essential to that? Are they important? So I'm th I'm thinking about something that's stressing me out, right? Um, can I just change my mind onto something else or do I need to clap? Do I need something that's going to just interrupt that pattern and start me moving in a different direction? What, what's the What's the sort of, sorry. The thoughts on that? Um, yeah, a pattern interrupt can be useful because you it really draws your attention to it, doesn't it? Whatever yeah. that pattern interrupt may be, if it's a, what's the example you gave? Like a, like a, clap, like a clap or standing up or just moving your body, like anything just to interrupt yeah, so it. Something like that is, is something that you're going to pay attention to because it, it, it absolutely interrupts that flow of what's happening in that moment. So that would make sense to do, to have something that your attention is much more likely to be drawn towards okay. to then create a different path. Makes sense. Do, do you have, like you obviously you mentioned that you can you can change your thought processes a bit now how do you interrupt your own thoughts and how do you direct your attention onto something else <laughs> great question because there are many answers to that one i think to to go into what what we do a lot is when i when i find myself not taking action in a certain area I actually trained myself at the gym. I hated doing squats mm. to the point where I wouldn't do them if I could unless there was a personal trainer there making me. And I ended up coming up with a way of doing it of I literally clap and punch my hand in, mm. fist into hand. And I did that every single time I went to do a set of squats. And now if I want to take action on anything, that's my go-to because I've, I'm yeah. setting myself, I've, I've set it up that that's, if I'm doing that, I'm committing to whatever is in front of me. So that's kind of like... That, that, that yeah. I use that as a pattern interrupt as well, but yeah. it's not where it came from. Yeah. So that's, I don't know. That's an interesting, interesting point, actually, because I, I realised to myself that uh, when I'm about to go running, I do all these sort of dynamic warm ups, but they actually make me function 
cognitively much better. So I'm like, okay, so before I do anything that requires effort and energy, I do my little warm up before running because why not? It's really effective. And it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's like, and, and it also yeah. it, it focuses your attention. It's a pre-performance routine. This mm. is why athletes have pre-performance routines. Yeah. It's as much about focusing their attention psychologically for what's about to happen as it is about warming the body up physiologically. So talking about athletes, that sort of the next thing I wanted to discuss on this was exercise and the role of dealing with anxiety. So before we sort of open up the discussion on this, when I'm going through stressful periods in my life, I don't weight train because I feel like weight training stresses me out, whereas running calms me down. I mean, for me, there's a big difference between straining your system and doing something which is lowering your stress levels in general. Is that gen generally accepted or am I just completely on the wrong path there? I think that generally makes sense as far as the science is concerned. I know some people do experience a calming effect from weight training, yeah. but I also acknowledge your point that, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, if you're anxious, by definition, you're carrying tension in your body and your muscles. And then by doing weight training, you're loading more tension onto a body that's already holding a reasonable amount of tension. So that at some level would be counterintuitive, wouldn't mm. it? Whereas with running and aerobic exercise, mm. There's a lot of evidence that you release endorphins far more so than you do with with weight training, for example. Yeah. So what what you're saying makes sense, but that's still not how everybody that I know and of have course. worked with experiences it. <clears throat> On that point, I was reading a study that was saying that PM so PMR is can also be trained by the way you exercise. So what this guy was saying is that. If you exercise in one minute intervals where you go all in, doesn't matter what exercise, go all in for a minute, then you relax for a minute and you relax as much as you possibly can in that time. You're training your nervous system to be able to go all in, but to calm down very, very quickly. And the guy that wrote this is a world-class chess player and martial artist. And he was saying when he transitioned to train like that, he could calm himself down instantly. Because, and it said it took him about only about three months. Is there much evidence on that or is that just a... Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. the first time I've heard that. But to me, it sounds like the same principle as the cold showers. That actually, you know, you're 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 putting your, yourself under stress and then you're recovering from that afterwards. Mm. So it's it's the same principle. There's that kind of rebound effect. Because mm. uh, when you exercise, it's the same same physiology as when you have a cold shower. Mm. You go into sympathetic, heart rate increases, etc. You get all those <clears throat> physiological changes. And then afterwards, there's that rebound effect where as you oh. recover and rest, your heart rate and blood pressure goes down lower than when you started, which is why yeah. the heart rate decreases with time as a yeah, training that, benefit. that completely completely makes sense actually and having the, <clears throat> the similar reaction as well so you know everyone says again this is sort of global terms right exercise helps with stress right i'm not convinced it always does i think that's a that's a global sort of simplification which i don't think is always true because there are some times where actually exercise has burdened me with more stress than not but secondly it's like surely you know, when people say exercise gets rid of stress, I think I don't agree with that. So let's say that you're stressed financially, right? Going running, going to the gym. For me, that's escapism. Yeah, it might release some endorphins, but how's that solving your issue? I think that it's, it's almost like this one size fits all. If you're stressed, exercise and it will help. I don't necessarily think well, it does. It depends how you define stress. Because mm. stre stress to me is something that happens inside the body. 
in response to life events. Mm. So there's a number of ways that you can you can have an impact on what's happening as far as the stress response is concerned. So there is an outside event yep. that causes a stress response in your body mm. and there's evidence that exercise can reduce yeah, stress sure. and anxiety. Sure. Um, it's not going to solve those problems. You might want to put some attention into solving what, those problems as well. Yeah, but what I was meaning was like, I think because our lives are so complex, I don't think life is a case of there's one stress and it's gone, one stress and it's gone. I think most guys specifically are under a permanent amount of stress. And this is my point. It's like, it's, you know, the stress I'm talking about is an ongoing stress. It's not, um, you know, just there's this stressful situation that I need to keep my attention to. And also often in life, some things you can give attention to you and you, you can't solve them. Some things are just stressful for a period of mm. time. Like you're getting sued or you've got a dispute with the family. There's an on, like, I think most people have something ongoing in their life. And what, you know, so it's like, so the idea of exercise, yes. But you see what I'm saying? It's I, like, I do, it's, it's, but it, I do. But again, you know, this is, uh, you know, I'm being deliberately going to be a bit provocative here. I don't sure. necessarily agree with this. But uh, what I could say is that events in and of themselves are not stressful. It's, it's how you perceive them. It's what's not just perception. Yeah. It's oh. what's happening physiologically. Okay. So there's perception if you come at it from a cognitive perspective, which we all know CBT. It's yeah. not what happens to you. It's how you perceive it, interpret it. And that's true. Um, but then it's what's happening physiologically. So there's a lot of evidence that if you are under ongoing stress, that's going to cause all sorts of dysregulation mm -hmm. in the body and in the nervous system. So regardless of what these stresses in the li your life may be, of which there are, are plenty. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. It's still the result that's having on your body as a result of these events. So whether you can reduce these events, whether you can challenge them using a cognitive approach mm. or whether you can use exercise as a way of mm. reducing the inflammation that's mm. happening in your body as a result of ongoing stress. I get it. And I think, you know, obviously we all exercise a lot. I'm not anti-exercise. It's just, I think that it's, it's like, a, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice quick fix to say to people, you should exercise. We've all, we all have times in life where we don't feel like exercising, right? And exercising in itself becomes stressful. Yeah. So, so it's like when people say, oh, I never get stressed because I always exercise. I'm like, well, you, you obviously, you know, let's be clear here. You're clearly not pushing yourself far, too far out of your comfort zone that often because if you're living within your comfort zone, yeah, sure, you're not really going to be that stressed, are you? Mm. But if mm. you're pushing yourself and you want to learn and grow, at times you're going to be burnt out. You're going to be stressed. You're not going to want to do these things and you're going to have to take some time off to recuperate, right? Is this, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, there's even yeah. some research looking at your, how you would define and perceive stress is a big part of this as well. That actually, if you perceive stress as something that's positive and helpful and the byproduct of challenge and following meaningful activities, that uh, a lot of these stress-related problems, diseases and illnesses and things, um, you won't experience those anywhere near as much. That's so your, your definition of stress is is a big part of it as well i mean i, I, I haven't really looked at point. that in in detail but that's really interesting that is really interesting because it's it, it's interesting because um when i was having an examination a while ago a friend of mine's a doctor and i was saying like he's it's like touching my stomach and i was saying that i have inflammation there and he said you don't have inflammation you have pain they're different and he was like explaining to me, i was thinking i feel better saying that there's pain there than what i did saying there's inflammation there and i'm thinking Obviously, the language that you use is important here. So when you when I'm labeling these things as stress, then it is obviously like a cognitive 
behavioral therapy way of dealing with this, but like, what would be a better way of labeling it? So if you can't, if we weren't going to use the word stress, right, are there other terms that are more useful to just define it as? If we just say, right, we're not going to call it stress anymore. We're going to call it a different word because it's got different associations. Is there any information on this or is there a... No, I, I mean, it, it's more more of about whether you perceive stress as always something that's negative or something that could be positive. And challenge is a word that's probably more more helpful. Sure. You know, you're, you're our nervous system, challenged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So stress, stress could be defined as the byproduct of a life that involves challenge and meaning mm, and mm, pursuit mm. of goals. I feel like there's yeah. a there's a couple of quite interesting points here there's the meaning behind the word is almost more important than the word mm. but i mean we we teach yeah. balancing your thoughts you can still use a, a thought balancing to change that meaning but the second thing is where would i mean you're saying that your perception of what the stressor is rather than the stress how does um, philosophy whether that's stoicism or buddhism or that, how does that tie in because obviously with stoicism which gary and i try and practice is what's outside your control and what's inside mm. and look even just labeling something outside your control can reduce it to reduce the feeling inside you as well yeah Absolutely. it's a really good point yeah. i think there's mm. a lot of the the philosophy stuff that can be very helpful here as well in terms of yeah how we how we understand and perceive and define stress is mm. i think is very important as well there's this underlying assumption within this that stress is something that's bad and negative to be avoided and it's not as straightforward as that yeah it's actually it's a really good point i mean the, the, buddhism is, is about relinquishing the sort of the outcome that you want because that's really where stress comes from right so like we were saying if you're goal driven you're going to be bringing stress into your life because you have goals right if you don't have any goals then you're not really going to have any stress, right? <laughs> because there's nothing to get stressed about. Something which I, I, I think was quite an important distinction with my own anxiety over the years is changing the deadlines. So I was always someone that was going to do it today, this month, this week, the next three months. Now I'm someone that's going to do it in the next five to 10 years. And that takes a lot of the burden away from me because it's important to have a deadline on your goals, but I also think it's important that that deadline isn't too soon because it gives you stress. So I was even thinking about this yesterday, just about like every, every day, I think this is a trap that everyone falls into. It's like, I need to be back by seven, right? And then something goes wrong. And then you get caught in that cycle of, I need to be back by seven and you're not going to hit the goal. You feel stressed, you feel anxious. And that's all you need to do is to just think, hang on a minute. Well, what happens if I'm back at eight? And that stress just falls out of your system. Mm. So is there is there much sort of literature or, or thought processes on like these false deadlines that you just make up in your mind and and, and give you anxiety? Yeah, I, I, the way I would understand that is a lot of that is coming from the body and the nervous system. Okay. So when, when you're experiencing somatic anxiety or ongoing stress, ongoing anxiety as well, well, ongoing stress more your nervous system becomes ramped up in this sympathetic nervous mm. system state. And what that does to you then cognitively is there's a sense of urgency mm. all the time, a sense of urgency and impatience that doesn't actually need to be there. Yeah. And you'll come up with a reason as to why it should be there. But primarily that's being driven by the body. So yeah. if you were able again mm. to relax the body mm. and slow down, mm. bring the heart mm. rate down, stop moving. Mm. If you were able to 
do that, which wouldn't be easy, then that sense of urgency probably wouldn't be there. So, so yeah, you can so go true. in, you can intervene mm. as far as the body's concerned, or you can mm. intervene at the the thinking brain level and change those deadlines. Yeah, that's so true. What you just said, because it's actually within within your body. Just so, just on this, I completely get that because actually, when I'm in that situation, I calm my body down first, and then my mind follows. Exactly. Interestingly, though. When it comes to calming your breathing and slowing your breathing down, so when you calm your breathing down, you are essentially, your body's becoming more carbon dioxide based because you're not getting rid of the carbon dioxide and bringing in the oxygen, right? How does that work? Because if you're going to follow someone like a Wim Hof's advice, it's all about getting more oxygen in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, and that calms you. So he's like, if you do this breathing for 20 minutes, you'll enter a state of nirvana like these Buddhists have been doing for 20 years. But I see a lot of the sort of westernized advice or the modern advice is, is to slow down your breathing and calm down, which is the direct opposite. Mm. <laughs> so is it a case of they both it, work? Or? It's, it's, it's a bit of a, um, there's mixture of opinions as far as breathing is concerned. There's okay. a, it's receiving a lot of attention at the moment. But uh, but yeah, I can see your point. They seem sort of yeah. contrary, don't they? But, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. There's different different approaches different systems that have different different goals behind them um but for me for me personally i think slowing down the breathing is probably probably more helpful more generally as far as anxiety is concerned okay. you know the wim hof stuff uh, you know amazing as it is for for many people mm -hmm. i know there's a lot of research into that at the moment i know a, a few people who've come to me with anxiety and have gone on wim hof trainings and retreats and it hasn't been a helpful okay. experience to them in yeah. fact it's gone the other way yeah. because of that the breathing patterns that you just yeah, described yeah. so um, um i, I find I, i'd yeah. have some reservations about recommending people with anxiety yeah. personally from my experience uh, to go on these i get it and, and, and it's interesting because i i have experience in cold showers and i also have experience in ice baths right and the breathing techniques required to do them and Really, when you go into an ice bath or cold shower, your body wants to exhale the carbon dioxide, right? So the Wim Hof breathing is about oxygenating your system so it's less of a stress on your body at the time, which mm. would make sense, mm. right? So then your body's not trying to expel... It's preparation for the yeah. cold water That's exposure, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, and it, it makes it a bit easier. So actually, if you go into an ice bath and you don't do it, it's actually more stressful mm. on your system, which mm. sometimes, if you're in a good place, may not actually be a bad thing anyway because you're coping in something more difficult. When it comes to breathing, I agree, it's a very complex area. There's a distinction on breathing, which I think would be interesting to talk about, which is the difference between Taoist breathing, which is never spoken about, and Buddha breathing. So Buddha breathing is the opening up, relaxing your stomach, deep diaphragmatic breathing, right? So Taoist breathing is where you tense your stomach and you do the same process, but it only expands your chest. And the difference being when you do Taoist breathing, you're essentially focusing your breath up towards your brain because your stomach is tensed. So the Taoist didn't actually do Buddhist breathing, which I find interesting. Having done both myself, I'm not really a fan of the Buddha breathing. It doesn't really work for me personally. Mm -hmm. I've tried to calm and to breathe into my stomach and to like the progressive muscle relaxation. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. But for me, if I tense my stomach and I do the same breathing, that makes my posture better. And actually that in itself makes me feel calm. Even now, like mm -hmm. just doing it now makes my posture better. It makes me, my um, lungs open up more. And that for me actually reduces anxiety mm. because there's a postural change. 
Have so you it heard, could have, just be the shift in the posture 100%, that's, that's creating yeah. that. But have uh, you tried Taoist breathing? I haven't before? tried it. No, yeah. no, but I'll look into it's, it. It's in, rather than just breathing into your stomach, you tense it and you breathe the same. And what it does is it gets all of your system like fully open and functioning mm -hmm, properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more like, I guess the difference I feel is I feel more cognitively aware, which again, knowing myself, I tend to struggle with being overwhelmed. That's my go-to sort of feeling. So that would probably make sense to me is that if I breathe into, into here, my posture's better, I probably can feel like I can cope mm. more. Whereas if I'm doing the sort of the relaxed breathing, I almost feel like I can't cope. I, I need to get the can I Can I ask yeah. you a question? Can I ask you what your experience of being overwhelmed is? How, how, yeah. would, you, how would you describe to me the experience of being overwhelmed? It, exactly like you were describing a minute ago where you, you're in overdrive. So you, okay. you can't get things done. So when I first started to try and deal with overwhelm, um, I couldn't even have, when I was at my worst, I couldn't have a to-do list written down because it would overwhelm me. So I used to get post-it notes and I used to write one task under the other. Mm -hmm. And when I did one, I could throw it away. And that was therapeutic, throwing it in the bin <laughs> and then doing the next one. And then when I learned to actually... So, through, so sorry yeah. to interrupt, when you say I, I, I couldn't do this because it would overwhelm yeah. me, what was that experience of so the, that, that was being like a overwhelmed? That was panic. like... Panic, okay. cognitive okay. shutdown. I okay. can't. I can't do this. Like uh, so, physical and, co and cognitive, oh, somatic. Yeah, okay. but bad. Like my overwhelm was really bad at one point. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, off the back of a, my car accident I had many years ago when I was probably about twenty three, twenty four. So it was a heightened state of anxiety of a potentially post traumatic stress disorder. But yeah, it's like I learned to like you know manage it, and then when I eventually got into the breathing techniques and stuff, and then learned actually, do you know what, like a lot of a lot a lot for me, a lot of the overwhelm comes from false deadlines. They're mm. a really big thing in my life, and they they sound like such a small thing, but they're not for no. me. Changing my deadlines got rid of almost all of my overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Just realizing, even like with trying to get podcast guests on record, you know, rather than saying you need to do one a day, you need to do one a week, and it's like. Oh, is that it? Yeah, I can easily do that. Mm -hmm. But I think we're kind of wired to want that battle. We're kind of wired to want a challenge, right? So I've I've been a bit more like selective over where I get that challenge from. So I'll, I'll try and set work so that I can do it in my sleep, right? So that's easy. And I'll seek my challenge through martial arts training or something competitive, because I feel like that's a much better use than, than false expectations mm -hmm. on work. It's mm -hmm. just yeah, it makes sense. I agree. I yeah. think if you recognize that you have a tendency to be overwhelmed sometimes if you have a lot going on, I think it's, it's yeah, it's channeling it in a way that's most effective for you and, mm. and recognizing that maybe, maybe some of that is coming from the body that that mm. sort of that impatience that uh, that sort of hyperactivity kind of element mm. and, and sometimes stopping slowing down the body or channeling it into something else would be quite helpful. 100%. But but I, I agree, you know, there is a tendency for people that are driven and who who are quite high energy and mm. i would describe you in that way mm. that uh, that they struggle with impatience mm -hmm. and a sense of urgency that doesn't actually need to be there but they've decided there. that it has but if you're able to shift your goals and change change your plan a little bit mm. then then and the be flexible in that then it takes away a lot of that pressure doesn't it yeah have you struggled with overwhelm before yes um, slightly different area though um, specifically for me it's more about prob because my go-to is problem solving so when I can't solve a problem that would be yeah, less, again le this is about five years ago but I would hit a problem I can't solve and then I get overwhelmed because I don't know where to go from there mm. and then developing the process 
But to touch on the goals and goal setting, I've had a few clients come up recently who are getting <laughs> brilliantly anxious or stressed based upon the fact that they want to achieve something by X date. Yeah. Now that might be find a girlfriend or it might be whatever their, their goal happens to be. And I've had to challenge them on what the goal actually is and the deadline. Mm. But in terms of like, from, from your sort of perspective, how would you actually go about setting a reasonable goal and an actually specific goal that makes sense that will not be anxiety inducing? Mm. It's a good question, Pete. It's a difficult one, isn't it? I, it's... Um yeah, I mean, identifying unrealistic goals is always a bit of a difficult one, isn't it? Because what's what's unrealistic to somebody else is yeah. really, it, yeah. it's 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 it should be a simple question, but I yeah, it's not, is it? No. <laughs> it's, 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 so yeah. you know how how do you determine what is a realistic or unrealistic goal and timescale is a is a how long is a piece of string? I'm, I'm not question, a massive fan of the terminology realistic either. I mean, no. we had this come up in in yeah. the event recently, but realistic is like. <laughs> I don't want to be realistic. Yeah, I want to be unrealistic because I want to achieve something. Because re realistic suggests reasonable, mm. sensible. That is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah I agree. 100%. Yeah, it's not particularly we, compelling or exciting, I, is I, it? I gave a talk about this about realistic expectations when I when I came up with the idea of starting social attraction, sort of the dating coaching company I have. Um, I was involved in a, in a business and the person I used to work with always used to be like, you're not being realistic. You're not being realistic. And the interesting thing was that he was right. I wasn't being realistic, but actually not being realistic set me on the path to be here today. And it's like, I don't mind not being realistic if it's going to make me take action. So it's like, you know, if you think that, for example, let's start something basic, right? Starting a conversation with a woman that most people are afraid to do it, okay? They see an attractive woman, the girl can be given them eye contact and they're petrified, right? Pete and I have been coaching people to overcome this for many, many years, right? It's a common theme. Now, if they had the expectation that the girl would be receptive, they're far more likely to do it. But the problem then is they then have to deal with the rejection afterwards. And if you're not expecting that, then that can almost be even worse. So this is the hard thing about being realistic, setting expectations, and also being able to manage it if you don't, because you set a really hard target, you don't achieve it. That could stop you ever setting that goal mm, ever mm. again. But that's the interesting part, isn't it? It needs to be a goal which is incentivized enough for you to take action, but not so that you suffer the mental health consequences of failing, achieving it. Exactly. Finding that sweet spot is yeah. not easy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's, no. No, and again, the way, the, way we, the way we train our clients to do that is we, we get rid of the external results. So we coach people to just go and pay women compliments and expect nothing. So you take away the expectation of being accepted or rejected. And then what happens is when you get used to giving a compliment, you can then change their goal to something further. Mm. It's something I learned, um, it's called a living through your karma. It's like a Buddhist principle that you can't, if you're scared to do something, you can't see behind it. So you often see these people that say, I really wanna to go to South America and they'll tell you it for the next 20 years, right? Buddhists believe that you should go now because you don't know what's behind it. And often I think that's kind of, um, a thought process for life, which is that if you're scared to do something, you can't see what's behind it. And again, taking this into account, when we're training people, what we do is we give them a small tangible goal that they're scared of. And then once they've overcome it, we then look at the next goal. Absolutely. Rather than saying, yeah. 
you know, rather than saying there's 20 things that you're going to need to be able to do, exactly. right? And then exactly. paralyzed. You. And yeah. that's the key to break it down into very specific actionable behaviors. So that yeah. that's that's what I do with goals as well. I think that's it. And uh, and I I don't focus even so much on on the end goal, whatever that might be, yes, and a time scale and this very rigid, outdated, smarter goal kind of approach. You know, I I it doesn't work no, for me. No. So think, you're you're more is it more process driven? Yeah, very yeah. much. Yeah. I think the the challenge we have, which if you get over this challenge, success just comes when when we're coaching. But the challenge we have is the number of clients who say, "Oh yeah, I agree," and then they're still thinking six six steps ahead, and you having yeah. to, you have almost having to rein them in. This is this is trust the process. Yeah, because. Because they're worried about the next six steps, they end up not taking, or they might take the action, but they're struggling to take the action. That, that, that's so true. But then again, going back to what Holly was saying, that's about your attention, isn't it? Yeah. Your attention on the process. It's like your mind can wander onto the game you're playing, but you've got to trust that process, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny when clients say to me, like, what, you know, it's all right for you, you know, when you're speaking to someone, you're trained in all these things. And I'm like, the only thing I am thinking about is paying someone a compliment. That's all I'm thinking about. That's it. I'm not thinking about anything else. And, as soon as you do, you mess it up. Yeah, and also you maybe know? impatience comes into that to a degree as yeah, well. That I think that that's another aspect as well. That yeah. you know, anxiety generally, as we know, everything tends to speed up. Mm. You might, you know, so again, just just saying to yourself, slow down, can mm. be very helpful. So that's a nice affirmation. Slow down. Slow mm. down. Just generally, those two words are particularly yeah. helpful. I think that you know, if if you're feeling anxious, there's a tendency to be impatient as well mm. and there's a tendency as we said to have that sense of urgency that doesn't actually need to be there so yeah. saying it's okay slow down trust the process mm. when i'm in that state because i'm quite like if i'm being honest I'm, I'm like that you know that's my sort of i'm quite energetic when i'm in that state what i tend to focus on are things that are inside my control that require that type of that type of thing so for example often i might not exercise first thing in the morning but i might wait until i'm beginning to feel like that then i'll go and smash out some exercise because i know that i can channel it at that stage so for me that that's been quite a good distinction is like when you're feeling like that yes you can try and calm yourself down um but actually for me it's just to use that energy in a more productive way yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and again even with anxiety generally you know anxiety is excess energy you have two general paths that you can go with that. You can either try and reduce that energy mm. by breathing, calming yourself down, relaxing the body, or you can perhaps channel that energy. Yeah. You can do some sort of vigorous exercise there and yeah. then that brings that energy level down to a point where then you might want to interrupt that, it. That, that is a really good piece of advice. For anyone, sort of, if, if you get anxious, getting up and just doing 10 press-ups, 20 press-ups if you're feeling really anxious helps. I know you don't want to do it, but it does help. Even just 10 press-ups. And also you're distracting yourself from the anxiety as well. Absolutely. And also you've got to remember that anxiety is all about wanting you to move. The yeah. body is in, is mobilizing you for action. So when, when you're feeling anxious, it's very difficult to be still anyway. You know, yeah. your body will want to move. So you're kind of doing what the body so, wants to do at some yeah. level, aren't you? So going for a walk is another productive thing you could do if you're feeling anxious. Just go for a walk around the block. Yeah, you walk. could do. Yeah, yeah it depends. I often say to my clients uh, you know imagine to tell me on a scale of one to ten what happens with this anxiety if if somebody so one being quite quite relaxed low anxiety ten being really ramped up if 
something happens and you go straight up to a nine or a 10, mm. it's very difficult then yeah, to yeah, relax your body and be calmer. So I say to people, if you're a nine or a 10, maybe try and channel that energy. Mm. Do something that brings you down to about a five, because we yeah. can do something with a five. With a five, we can work with that. We can, mm. we can interrupt. So to me, it's like interrupt or channel. If it's an eight or a nine, channel, expend that energy. If it's a yeah. four or five, you can interrupt it. And, and with regards to channeling that energy, is high intensity training the most effective way of doing that? Yes, I'd it say is. something. And again, it depends whether yeah, you're course. injury free gym, and your yeah. capability and fitness. But um, anything that you can do that uses big muscle groups that's going to use that energy up as quickly as possible so like, would be like, ideal. So like pushing a sled, box jumps, like anything that's explosive. Yeah, box jumps, burpees. Yeah. Everyone's so favorites. something I do when, when I get a client who just won't, that they're just too tense. They can't do it. I'd say 10 star jumps as fast as you can. Are you ready? Or do another 10 then? <laughs> yeah. Pete, yeah. Pete, yeah. Pete sent one of our clients off to have a cold shower. So Pete was doing a storytelling session. And, and I said to Pete in advance, that this guy is, can be a bit negative and his general mood's quite low. I said to Pete, tell him to do cold showers for like mood replenishment. So Pete stopped the session, made him have a cold shower. And because it was filmed, the guy could see the difference in his storytelling abilities afterwards. And it was really motivating him for, for him. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Excellent, excellent. I know, I, know, I love it. Yeah, the, uh, I think the other yeah. thing about doing, like, even even if you're out and about and we're coaching on, and out, well, out wherever, just doing the star jumps, actually, because it's a heart rate elevator as well, you end up with the added benefit of you've reduced anxiety because you feel silly. Mm. I've never felt silly and anxious at the same time. I don't, mm. I don't know if it's p actually possible, but I've mm. personally never felt both. Mm -hmm. You've also increased the other side of, of the actual... The, like the spark of life energy if you like where you're actually feeling a bit more childish and a bit more like yeah i'm actually up for this okay so yeah yeah like it. it's true isn't it it's, it's yes it's energy as well it's like ollie was saying it's getting the energy flowing again hmm. so I, we've got some other areas i'd sort of plan to talk about here but i, I think these are going to end up being like you know episodes in of themselves so like sleep for example i feel like that's going to be quite a big a big topic because i know that you know a hell of a lot about sleep so perhaps we should um Perhaps we draw this episode to an end. It's our first sort of panel discussion anyway. I just wanted to like, correct me if I've missed anything out here with the general sort of advice here. So progressive muscle relaxation is is something that people should be practicing maybe daily. Would you advise that? Like, I'd say so, yeah. Okay. I'd so say five minutes the in the morning, perhaps to prime themselves for the day. Yeah, again, ideally, but whenever you can fit it in, I wouldn't necessarily be as prescriptive as the time okay. of day. But, you know, if, if, if you're able to do, uh, the brain learns by repetition. Mm. If you can do that daily, wonderful, yeah. And it will help. Um, if your anxiety is out of control, try and channel it into exercise until it's maybe down to a five or six. And then when it's a five or six, you can try and do some of the more progressive muscle relaxations as well. That's what I would tend to do. Yeah. Um, with regards to people that get overwhelmed or stressed would be to get rid of the deadline on your goal or to push it back as a way of managing the anxiety and stress a little bit better. Um, did I miss any relevant things just as takeaways for people on the session or is this pretty well... No, no, I think that's and we spoke a little bit about stress, didn't we? And mm. maybe whether you perceive stress as, oh, yeah, as positive one. or negative, that yeah. this idea that stress is bad and to be avoided, it might not be as straightforward as you, that. I'm going to do some internal work on that. And we can talk about this in another episode because I like the idea of it. It's like a global belief change that mm. could change everything, which mm. I like because it's kind of going to the core. Right? Yeah, I, I was going to say think. we could almost do a whole podcast yeah. on beliefs. So. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, listen, thank you both for joining me today. And uh, I will look forward to seeing you on the next one. Pleasure. Thanks, guys.